This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Well, welcome back to another episode of Parker's Pensies. This is a podcast where we explore thoughts in philosophy, theology, nature, and life. I love thinking about cool stuff. So come think with me. I just want to give a big shout out to the Patreon supporters. Um, and if you have benefited from the show, please uh, consider becoming a Patreon supporter. Uh, a patron, I think. Uh, I just added a bunch of new cool stuff over there. So you can go and get stickers and uh, mugs and all sorts of fun stuff. So check that out. Link in the description. Uh, but without further ado, uh, I have another special guest with me. Today I have Dr. Tom Morris, and we're going to be talking about philosophy outside the academy. So without further ado, Dr. Morris, thanks so much for, for coming on the podcast. Hey, it's great to be here with you, Parker. Well, so um, instead of introducing you fully, you know, I think our full conversation is going to be about you and your story. Um, can you just uh, briefly tell us, like, wh- wh- where'd you get your PhD? You got a PhD in philosophy. Where, where was that at? Well, you know, uh, let me back up a little bit, and I'll get you there. Uh, yeah. Interestingly, right. no, nobody in my family had ever gone to college. And uh, Whoa. I think it was the summer before my senior year at Durham High School in Durham, North Carolina. My mother said, hey, there's no money for college, so figure out what kind of job you want to get. And mm. I was kind of surprised because all my friends were applying to college, you know. And I said, well, I want to go to college. She said, well, there's no money. So we got a letter in the mail saying I was nominated by my high school for a special scholarship. It was called a Moorhead scholarship to UNC Chapel Hill. Hmm. And we, we didn't even know what it was. So my mother called the teacher and said, what's a Moorhead scholarship? And her teacher said, the teacher said, what's about the best thing possible. It's all expenses paid for four years. And he may even have money left over at the end of the four years from the scholarship. So he should, he should take it if he gets it. So I went to UNC Chapel Hill, um, uh, did a lot of philosophy, but my mother could not really understand why I wanted to do philosophy. So I ended up having to major in religion because as a good Southern Baptist, she could only complain so much about that. Right. <laughs> right. And so I got right. away with the religion major. And then I decided to go to graduate school to do philosophy of religion. And so I looked, at, but in religious studies, well, there were two programs co-ranked number one that year, Yale and Chicago. I didn't want to go to Chicago. So I applied to Yale. I got into Yale. And because I was a Moorhead scholar at Chapel Hill, now called a Moorhead cane, uh, I got a free ride to Yale for six years. So it never cost me a dollar, but I got uh, two masters and a double PhD in philosophy and religious studies. I was the second person ever to do work in both those two departments at the same time, which was quite an ordeal, but I'm glad I did it. I used to tell my friends I got twice as good a chance in the job market. And they'd say, yeah, what's two times zero? <laughs> but I, I persevered. And uh, and then I, I did some something really original for my dissertation, and it got me hired by the place that wanted to be number one in the world in that specialty, philosophy of religion, which was the University of Notre Dame. So I started uh, my career at the most amazing place. We quickly did become number one in that specialty, and I thought I was going to spend my entire career, you know, in the classroom at Notre Dame. I mean, I had I had big classes. I had an eighth of the student body most years in my class. I had 12 teaching assistants, so I didn't have to grade papers. I had uh, wow. I taught two days a week, and uh, it was just a wonderful place to be. But then I started being asked by business groups that had heard about the popularity of my classes. Hey, did the philosophers say anything about ethics that we need to hear today or about success. Did the philosophers talk about success? And that started what I've been doing now for 30 years. Yeah, that's that's so great. So why did the businessmen, why did they think to, to talk to you about that? Well, it's funny. The first person who came to my house was a lady from the Chamber of Commerce. Hmm. She was a neighbor and she said, look, I've heard your classes are really popular at Notre Dame. Uh, we're having a thing in the Chamber of Commerce for young business leaders in the community 
uh, deemed to be the future top leaders of their companies. And we're going to do a day on business. On, we're going to do a day on ethics, and we're going to do journalistic ethics in the morning, take them to the local TV station, the local newspaper. We want to do business ethics in the afternoon. Could you give us a talk on business ethics? And rather than saying, well, that's not my specialty, and I've never taken even a class in that, I've never even read a book on that, I said, okay, let me put something together. So I did two things, Parker, and I recommend this to people. Say yes to as many things as you can, even if you don't think you're ready, because you're going to learn something. I decided to do two things. First of all, go look at the best-selling business books uh, about success. Um, Mm -hmm. And I read two or three of those. I listened to motivational speakers' tapes. I wanted to figure out what I needed to build on and what I needed to resist, Uh, And so then I did just some thinking about ethics from a philosophical point of view. I made my presentation for about an hour and almost everybody there said, you got to do that at my church. You got to do that at my Kiwanis club, my Rotary club, my bank, my real estate company. So I was I was all over South Bend, Indiana, giving free talks for two years. And then an Oldsmobile dealer called me and he said, look, we have this regional Oldsmobile dealers association meeting once a year and we always have a motivational speaker and they all kind of say the same thing you know set goals aim high believe in yourself did the great philosophers say anything deeper about success and i said to i said to this guy parker i said i don't know it's not the kind of stuff i studied at yale but i'll look into it if you want me to and he said okay and so five months later i was in front of a room full of osmobile dealers talking about success and they went nuts Mm -hmm. and they started telling their friends. And before you knew it, I was flying all over the country. Shortly after that, I was in Finland and Sweden and Russia and Costa Rica. And I was being asked to talk about success everywhere. And it just kind of launched me into this thing. I never expected my wife would pick me up at the airport from a speech I'd given someplace, take me into campus. I'd teach intro to philosophy eat lunch and teach a senior seminar and she'd take me back to the airport to fly off to someplace <laughs> else. It was crazy. And at one point after this had gone on for a few years, she said, you're going to have to make a choice. Or are you going to burn yourself out? You know, what's it going to be university life or, or this and university life was great. I was a full professor. You know, I, I, I was kind of doing some pioneering work in my field It was wonderful, but I felt a sense of calling to go bring philosophy to where people were. Not everybody can go to a great university to study philosophy for a semester or a year, but we all need it in our lives. And it occurred to me the last truly public philosopher not affiliated with the university was Ralph Waldo Emerson, 150 years before my time. And I thought, okay, it's about time that philosophers unlock the gates of campus and get out into the world, hit the streets, you know? So um, in 1995, I did what nobody had ever done. I resigned being a full professor, not to go someplace else to another university, but just to set up as an independent philosopher. Now, you know, I don't know how I explained that to my mother, but, (laughs) but here we are, you know, here we are 26 years later and I'm, and I'm still doing it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, your your story was so interesting to me as I heard uh, in, in class, you know, people talking about um, what do we do with this degree? What do we do with a degree in, in philosophical theology or, or philosophy of religion? And we, we all kind of joke about, well, we'll find a professorship and I'm going to find one, but you won't. And then uh, every, every now and then a, a professor will joke, say, hey, well, you know, Tom Morris made it out. You know, he's in business. He's in the business land. So there, so you're kind of the, the shining hope for a lot of us. Yeah. But I wanted to talk to you about this because um, – I study theology and I'm looking to go on and study philosophy. And like you said, uh, zero times two is still zero. (laughs) Not very many jobs, but a lot of professors have talked about, you know, you better find a plan B, you better find a plan B. And you're kind of the plan B that wasn't uh, a fallback, but that kind of blossomed out of this. Yeah. And so um, I don't know if you've, if you've personally thought about this, I'm sure you probably have, but is there, are you unique or can this be done by other philosophers and even theologians? Yeah, I really, I think it can be done. uh, I think it can be done by anybody who gets excited about ideas. Mm. 
and about ideas that people can use to enhance their lives. And if you're passionate about it, if you uh, turn yourself into a good storyteller, you're a person who yourself enjoys what you're doing. And see, it helped me that as a teenager, I played guitar in bands and I traveled a lot and played for some big audiences. So I was accustomed to being in front of thousands of people. I would mentally hide behind the other six guys, you know, mm-hmm. but so it's different when you're on stage by yourself. But I've had audiences of up to 10,000 people in a room, and that's a different kind of experience. But if you're excited about what you're doing, if, if, if you've absorbed ideas that you want to share with other people, and if they're ideas that you know will help those other people with their lives, you just walk onto a stage like that and you have fun talking about those ideas and what results can be extraordinary. I mean, I've, I've seen thousands of people jump to their feet stomping and clapping and whistling and yelling at the end of a philosophy talk. And you would say, who, whoever thought this would happen, you know? And like I say, for the first two years, I was doing it all for free. I didn't think of this as a, a business or a job or an occupation that would pay the rent or anything. I just wanted to make a difference for people. And I had a graduate student who went on to be director of alumni at Yale and then became dean of admissions for many years at Yale, a very accomplished guy named Jeff Brinzel. He came in, he had been a public speaker before he became a graduate student in philosophy. And so he came into my office one day. He said, I hear you've been giving all these talks to businesses. I said, yeah, it's, it's a lot of fun. And he looked around my shelves in my office. He said, I see a lot of coffee mugs and baseball caps and ballpoint pens with stuff like Kiwanis and Rotary and the bank and the real estate. Is this what they're paying you for your speeches? I said, yeah, isn't it great? (laughs) You know, you can actually get paid money for talks to business groups. I said, really? I, I didn't know. Well, shortly after that conversation, somebody called me and said, we've got $50 for a speaker. And I said, really? Uh, okay. Cause I was doing it for free, you know? And then the next call was 150. The next call was 250. The next call was $500. And really before you knew it, people were paying me more for an hour of speaking than Notre Dame paid me per year as a professor. And again, that's not the reason I did it. I didn't even know that that would happen. You know, I just did it to be of use to people. And um, it just became this tremendous thing. I gave a talk once years ago to the top 750 people at Merrill Lynch globally, their global leadership team. And I was the only person on the program that you never heard of. You know, I'd hardly heard of me. You know, it was uh, it was yeah. like, uh, why are they letting me? Because uh, I was pretty young at the time. I was in my late 30s or early 40s. And I said, why are they asking me to give a talk? But I gave my little talk. And interestingly, Parker, at the time, I used overhead transparencies. You know, now it would be PowerPoint. But they didn't have a setup for that. So I couldn't use my transparencies. I like to walk around the stage when I'm giving a talk or around the room. And they couldn't do that. They had a They had a stage that was about five feet by five feet at, by, and a podium. And I had to stay at the podium. No, no clip on microphone. It was, a, <laughs> you know, I had to stand behind the microphone and, and I usually would give my talks in an hour. Well, they only had 45 minutes. Mm-hmm. So I was just thinking, man, everything's against me here. All the stuff yeah. I like to walk around. I can't walk around. I use, I like to use, you know, um, visual illustrations. I can't do that. Uh, boy, this is, and I've only got 45 minutes. Okay. I'll just do I'll just pour myself into those 45 minutes and do my best. Oh, and I forgot to mention, of the 750 people, 50 were in front of me, 350 were on the right, and 350, it was the weirdest room layout I've ever seen. And so I just said, okay, forget, I don't care. I'm just going to have fun and do this thing. And I got this standing ovation from these people, Mm. and they were just these are guys in dark suits who are shouting and clapping and stomping their feet. And they hired me in three years, the three years after that, they hired me 43 times to give other speeches for their groups, each time paying me my Notre Dame annual salary for each 45 minutes or an hour. It was ridiculous. I mean, I had no idea there was such a need in America. There's almost like a drought of wisdom 
Yeah, yeah. We, we've got a flood of counterfeit wisdom all mm-hmm. around us and faux virtue, you know. But the real thing, you know, people are hungry for it. So when I left Notre Dame, I thought to myself, okay, I'll be able to support myself. And people said, how do you know you're giving up a guaranteed job for life, guaranteed mm-hmm. income for the rest of your life, uh, for the next 20 years at least? How do you know that businesses are still going to be hiring you six months from now? And I said, well, you know, I don't know that, mm-hmm. but I feel a sense of calling. And I said, in my tiny way, it's almost like Abram being called out of Ur and named mm-hmm. Abraham, that he was the father of faith because he was willing to leave the place he was prosperous and the place he knew to go into the unknown for a promised land he couldn't even imagine. And he did it out of faith, not out of certainty. And so I'm going to try to do the same thing. I just really feel like I'm supposed to do this. And and to tell you a side story, Parker, I used to be afraid of flying. I wouldn't get on an airplane for nine years during my time at Notre Dame. And all of a sudden, I was flying on 400 to 500 airplanes a year. And people said, do you suddenly think flying is safe? And I said, no, I suddenly think I'm supposed to do it. Mm-hmm. And, and that was my Abrahamic thing, you know. So I didn't know there was any security attached to this at all. I, I didn't know that whether I'd be back knocking on the door at Notre Dame in two years, you know. But that was 26 years ago. Yeah. But here's a mistake I made. I said to myself, okay, people pay for two kinds of things. People pay for what they want. Mm-hmm. and they pay for what they need. Uh, and so everybody needs philosophy. So this is going to just keep going. You know, philosophy is not going away. Well, I made a little mistake in that reasoning. People do pay for two kinds of things. They do pay for what they want, mm-hmm. but they don't pay for what they need. They pay for what they believe they need. And if they don't believe they need philosophy, they're not going to pay for it. The Washington Speakers Bureau once said to me, after I had given hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of talks for them. They once said, you're the hardest speaker to sell we've ever worked with. Because when people hear you're a philosopher, they say, no, that's that's not going to work. But you're the easiest we've ever worked with to resell. Once people hear what philosophy is, they want more. But there's an initial resistance because almost everybody had a bad course or know somebody who had a bad philosophy course with a professor who mumbled to himself for the hour and said mm-hmm. things nobody could understand. And that's this impression of philosophy. So you, you have, we have to break you through that. And you know how they did it? They had an interesting policy. They would pair me up with really famous speakers, with Colin Powell, with George H.W. and Barbara Bush, with James Carville and Mary Matlin, with whatever astronaut was uh, famous then, with whatever Olympic gold medalist there were, whichever coach won the national championship. And that famous person would be the first speaker at a conference, and I would be the last, or Mm -hmm. I would be the last person, and they would be the first. And even though they were paying me, what my annual salary was for an hour, I would still be the junior speaker on that list, you know. Okay. But when they paired me like that, people, I, I was the who's he amongst the who's who, you know. Uh, and people would say, who's this guy? Colin Powell would get a standing ovation when he walked onto the stage. Okay. I had to work hard, and I would get it when I walked off the stage. Mm-hmm. But I was teaching people what philosophy is and what it could do in their lives. And it was so much. It's always been just been so much fun. Yeah. Well, well, Dr. Morris, what, 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 um, so there's so a there's kind a of trope that, that, that says uh, the analytic turn has, um, you know, it's bifurcated philosophy. It's been so focused on one area, one specific area of, you know, epistemo, whatever you get all, you get so specialized. And so it's kind of this trope that modern philosophers don't really care about wisdom. They don't really care about ethics or the good life. Um, so when, when you're teaching philosophy, are, um, are you able to pull from modern uh, philosophers as well? Is it all back to Seneca, back to Plato? Um, can, can you kind of talk us through yeah. your, your uh, what do you, what are you teaching these folks? Yeah. You know, uh, sure. I mean, first of all, I ended up kind of rediscovering uh, the practical side of philosophy, mm-hmm. you know, starting about a hundred years ago, um, philosophers were kind of jealous of some of their children the natural sciences that used to be called natural philosophy, but had broken away to become biology and chemistry and physics and all this. And, and these 
branches originally of philosophy were making such strides in very technical ways that a lot of the university philosophers started using more logic, more symbolism, more quasi-mathematical, really careful about their language, the coining specialist terminology, kind of in emulation of the natural sciences. But that pulled them away from the fundamental human questions they had always been dealing with. Now, there have always been theoretical philosophers. You know, it's always been hard to read Kant's Critique of Pure Reason or Hegel's Phenomenology of Spirit. Always been hard. That's one kind of philosophy. But it's always been engaging to read Seneca or Marcus Aurelius or Epictetus or Confucius or Lao Tzu. Or there are things in Plato that are so engaging to what people really are concerned about. There are things in, in uh, Socrates' other student, uh, Xenophon. There are remarks of, of, of Socrates that he preserved that Plato didn't preserve because Plato was more interested in theory. Well, I'm going back to all those guys. But to give you an example to answer your question, I walked into a small boutique hotel one day, and um, I, I had I had been there earlier in the afternoon. They were setting out snacks, kind of afternoon tea, and I sat down, um, and uh, I was having a little snack, and I was all by myself in this beautiful lobby. And a, a young guy comes in in a suit, and I said, hey, fix yourself a snack and come over here and sit down and talk. I mean, I didn't know who this guy was. So he came over and sat down. I said, what's your name? What, what do you do? He told me his name. And I said, so, so what's your work? And he said, well, I'm president of the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation. And I said, no, you're not. Come on. You know, he said, yeah, I am. And uh, we got to talking about his dad was a philosophy professor when I was an undergraduate at Chapel Hill. And so we got to talk about modern philosophy and all this. So he had to go to a meeting. I had to go to a meeting. I come back in the room later. And somebody says to me what I had said to that guy, hey, get some food and come and sit and talk to us. I said, okay. What ends up, it was the it, it, it was the, the president, CEO, and editor-in-chief of Fortune magazine with his wife and a, a friends of theirs. And so we spent two hours talking. This was two years ago, two or three years ago. We spent two hours talking politics, business, and philosophy. And I was using an ordinary language philosopher uh, to uh, uh, a little book called How to Do Things with Words yeah, that Austin. to illuminate yeah. political discourse in our time. And this guy, Alan Murray's wife, was saying, you need to be taking notes on this. You need to know this stuff. Well, this was modern British analytic linguistic philosophy being used to illumine our political landscape, you know. Um, so you're not going to make much headway with Merrill Lynch to to use uh, modal logic on your PowerPoint, right? There are certain things. It's almost like we do all that stuff to hone our analytical skills so that we can use those skills for the game that people want to play. It's almost like a football player. He better mm -hmm. spend a long time in the gym to be a great football player, but you never see somebody at halftime bring bench presses onto the field and dumbbells and it, right? He does that to prepare for what he does on the field. That's the way I look at so much of modern analytic philosophy. It prepares you the best we've ever been prepared to be clear thinkers for people, to be precise, to be pre precise in bringing people real wisdom rather than counterfeit wisdom. We see through the fallacies. We see through the falsehoods. We can find those jewels, those gems buried beneath the mud. It, it, it's, it's almost like an image I've used. I live at the beach in North Carolina, but I like an image of being in the mountains, mm -hmm. uh, panning for gold in a cold mountain stream. And most of the day I'm standing with the water up to my knees and I got my pan in the, in the creek and, and most of the time, my, my pan is full of mud. But every now and then, I see a gold speckle, and I pull it out. It's a nugget. And I wash it off, and that's what I give people in my speeches and in my books because they don't have time to stand in a cold stream all day long looking for that gold, but I do. And then what do they pay me for? To bring it to them in ways that they can use. So modern philosophy has served me just as well as Stoicism or Confucianism or Taoism or, or Christian thought of the Middle Ages. You know, I, I draw from all the wisdom traditions, and I try to package it in a way that doesn't distort it, but makes it usable for people in their lives right now. Mm -hmm. That's so That's fantastic. So fantastic. I, I think I, I, think I, I completely, completely agree, agree with, with your idea, idea of, of um, um, 
yeah, be a yeah, practice yeah, and then bringing it to people. Um, that's that's kind of how I think of of uh, philosophy as well. So I I love reading you know Thomas Nagel and and yeah. uh, the, the view from nowhere. And it's yeah. like well you know there's more to reality than objective reality, and because there's subjective reality. And I want my students to know that. I don't mm-hmm. want them to be you know crazy modernists and uh, re- reject the subjective perspective. Right. Uh, we have to, there's a lot of hard work to do in helping people think through that. Yeah. But then we get to repackage that, and as they as they grab it, as they start metabolizing it and, and chewing on it, then you can let them in further and deeper and you can give them a book on this. You can give them Nagel's book and yeah. come along with me now. Come along with me. And you're trying to leave some breadcrumbs for them. Absolutely. And then the real magic happens when they get to the point of seeing a side of what you're talking about that you haven't even paid attention to yet. It hasn't even occurred to you, but that's because they have a different background. They have a different educational journey and adventure. And so that's positioned them to maybe see a facet of this truth that, you know, you've been blinded to. So as a teacher, I become a student and, and they're teaching me, uh, you know, which allows me to teach the next group even better. There's this great dynamic, uh, a virtuous uh, a cycle that goes on there. Uh, and with business groups, especially with the leadership groups of, of these big global companies, you got some really smart people, uh, people who, who could have gotten their PhD in philosophy, if that's the direction they had chosen to go in. But they 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 are just as analytic. They're just as probing. And so to be in conversation with them and see from their point of view, the things I'm talking about, it's a, it's like I'm I'm learning more. I'm on a, a learning curve you know, steeper than anyone I've ever been on. And it's lasted for 25 years so far. Very cool stuff. Yeah. Well, so uh, it's so awesome. I love that. What, what do you, what do you put in people's hands? So someone catches a spark, they, they, their mind comes awake. Yeah. What's the next step for that person? Right. Because, you know, unlike a, a university where you got 16 weeks and two or three meetings a week, right. And you can really cultivate the garden. You're not just planting seeds, but you're cultivating the garden. You can watch things grow, actually. You know, for me, mm-hmm. it's for most groups, I've got an hour and I may or may not see that same group of people ever again. So because most business groups think it is part of their mandate for meetings that they expose people to as many new ideas and as many speakers as possible. So I've often been hired back by big trade associations that will say to me, you're the first speaker we've ever had back. Um, but still, the room is not the exact same people because in those two two years or year, there are people who left, there are new people who've come in. And so you're not building the way you do in a university context. So what I try to do is this. In my early years, a guy who used to be a producer at The Tonight Show followed me around to about five or six speeches. And in about the second or third one, he said, you know what you need to do? You need to have a little laminated wallet card with the ideas printed on the card that you're talking about, that people can carry away with them so they'll continue to think about these things. I said, well, that's a good idea. And so next talk, a few months later, he comes up and he says, where's your laminated wallet card? And I said, well, I haven't gotten around to it yet. (laughs) <laughs> Two months later, same conversation. Where are the laminated wallet cards? You know, I've been meaning to do that, but I've just been mm-hmm. too busy. Third time, he comes up to me and he hands me a stack of laminated wallet cards. He said, give them out today to everybody in the uh, room. And I look at these cards and I still have one of the original cards. It's got the seven ideas I talked about that day. Seven universal conditions for success. I call them the seven C's of success drawn from all the philosophers across wisdom traditions. And the back of the card was blank. So I said, I'll make these. And on the back, I'll put my website address. I'll put ways to get in touch with me, maybe the cover of a book. And I'll create a website that they can come to for further reading and to kind of deepen themselves in this. So you're right, Parker. It was so important for me not to just have a one and done, you know, a hit and run, but to start a process with people. So so even today, every few weeks, I'll hear from somebody. I heard you in San Diego uh, 20 years ago, and I still carry the laminated wallet card in my in my wallet. You know, I'm just I'm thrilled. One guy said, he heard me speak on success. He bought my book, True Success, A New Philosophy of Excellence. He he gave it to all his kids as graduation presidents, and now he's giving it to his grandkids. I'm thinking, am I that old? <laughs> but 
for ideas to stick with people like that, that really gives us as philosophers a sense of satisfaction that we're really being of use to people. Yeah. Yeah. Dr. Morse, do you, do you have any kind of, um, do you have any kind of vision for, so you, you're creating, uh, you're, you're creating philosophers in these business people uh, and, and whoever you're speaking to, do you have any kind of vision for creating more public philosophers that are doing uh, what you're doing? Have you, have you considered that at all? You know, it never even occurred to me for the longest time, but I'm starting to think about that because I can't remember if it's Rutledge or Wiley or Blackwells or somebody is putting out a book, um, a guide to, to public philosophy, and they asked me to write an essay for it. And so I did. I kind of told my story in, in various ways. And I thought to myself, wow, there are a lot of – and over the years, I've gotten – emails or phone calls from a lot of younger philosophers who, who've said, basically, I want to do what you're doing. Hmm. And just in talking to them, I can tell some of them aren't ready at all, and some really are. And so the ones who aren't ready, I try to counsel them on how to get ready. And the, the ones who are already in, in a great position to do this sort of thing, I try to tell them how I got started and help them think through what their own version of that might be. But you're right, Parker. I think I, at, at some point soon, uh, I'm finishing up two big books, one that's taken me 20 years and one that's taken me 30 years to write. And as soon as these are completely put to bed, I'm going to think through whether I should hold an event for younger philosophers who want to have more impact in public and just spend a weekend together talking about, because pretty soon we'll be able to do that again, right? Yeah. We can take off the mask and, and meet together and and just uh, share all our stories about what we've seen that works and what we've seen that doesn't work. Because it can be like this. It's not like a university job that it's always going to be the same. I mean, the recession hit in 2008, and everybody canceled all their meetings. So that was like uh, all the classrooms at Notre Dame being locked for two or three years, right? So what do you do? Right. You, 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 when life hands you lemons, make lemonade, right? You figure right. out new ways to serve people. In this pandemic, everything, the entire speaking industry shut down. Well, mm. people were calling me last March. Oh, we're having such trouble dealing with all the uncertainties and all the difficulties. And could you give us a talk? But we don't have any budget for a virtual talk. But is there any possibility? So I was doing pro bono. Back to the beginning, free talks, two to four times a week in March, April, and May, because nobody could pay, but everybody needed me. Yeah. Well, Parker, I don't do this to get paid. I do this because people need this. And if they can pay, too, that's also good because my family likes to eat. You know? yep. But uh, but it got me good as a Zoom presenter when other speakers were just sitting home waiting for the pandemic to be solved. Yeah. I was on every virtual platform known to man and learning how to use them uh, and then getting books finished that I didn't have time to finish while I was traveling all the time. So, you know, there are different phases of life and the one coming up now may be one where I want to work with more young philosophers on how to do in their own way, not copying me because my way may be just idiosyncratic, mm -hmm. but there could be some version of what I've done that will be tailored to many different philosophers who, when I'm 99 years old and don't want to drive across town to give a, a speech, they'll say, yeah, I'll say, yeah, Parker, you go do it. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Well, uh, Dr. Morris, what, what are the, what are the kind of attributes? You said some people aren't ready. Some people are ready. When you see someone that is ready, what do they look like? What do you see in them that you say, yeah, you, you could do this? They're really animated. They're on fire for the ideas. They're excited about the ideas. Mm -hmm. And they're good storytellers. And they're also often pretty funny. Okay. Uh, people love to laugh and people love vivid stories because we're all living a story mm -hmm. whose end we don't know. And we don't even not just know the end. We don't even know the next chapter often. That's Sometimes right, we right. don't even know the next page. And so we've got this innate desire to hear other people's stories insofar as they might shed light on our own path. So you talk about getting people's attention. When you tell a great story and it's not too long, it's short, it's pithy, 
it's applicable. It expresses a vivid idea. And especially if it's got some funny twists and turns to it, people are going to remember that. They're going to go home and tell their spouse or tell their kids. or And, and they're like memory hooks. They're going to remember what you were talking about because they remember the vivid story. Some of the best books are the same way. I want to run downstairs and, and read a, a story to my wife that I just read in this guy's book because he's such a good storyteller, right? So if I see those attributes in a person, I say, okay, let's just turn you loose on a business audience, you know, but, but there are too many philosophers who think that a, a famous agent at the Washington Speakers Bureau, Tony D'Amelio, he was my main agent for 16 years. And he said to me, Tom, you're a rare professor who can make the transition to public speaking. And I said, why? Because I would think professors would be natural. They're accustomed to being in front of groups of people and they're accustomed to talking. You would think that would be the easiest group of people to turn into public speakers. He said, no, most professors think it's their job during the hour mm -hmm. to provide as much information as possible. And they lose their audiences. You innately understand, he said to me, that your job in that hour is impact to have the greatest positive impact and you use information for the sake of impact. You don't let the tail wag the dog. And mm -hmm. I thought, wow, that's interesting because I've always said to the young guys that helped me out in my years when I was too busy. Like one year I was in 93 cities get, doing philosophy and the next year I cut it in half. But I didn't want to tell people, no, sorry, you can't have any philosophy because there weren't other philosophers they could turn to back then. So I had two or three younger philosophers that I would say, hey, could you go give a talk on my book if Aristotle ran General Motors in Athens, Greece, uh, mm -hmm. you know, next September? Okay. And they made him wear a toga uh, for the two-hour talk. Uh, <laughs> could, could you go, go to Istanbul and give a talk related to my book, True Success, or whatever? And um, I would always say to these younger philosophers, impact first then income. Never mm -hmm. get that re in reverse order. Never care more about, you know, what you're being paid than you care about the difference you're making. Yeah. Our job is to make a difference in the world, right? Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, Socrates refused, apparently, to accept any pay whatsoever for what he was doing because there were too many people in his time, the sophists, yeah, as yeah, there are in our time, who right? Who all they wanted exactly. to do was they do. They'll say whatever you wanted to get paid. Just pay me. I'll, I'll say whatever you want. I'll argue it really well too. You're absolutely right, and we have the equivalent of that in our time. Many of these guys with best-selling books that sell a million copies, who are telling people what they want to hear rather than what's the truth, mm -hmm. right? And so, so it, I would be like Socrates if I could, right? If I had a, you know a trust fund or something, but I'm a I'm a guy who grew up in a house about the size of the room I'm sitting in now, 800-square-foot house, uh, a rented house with ditches out front, and everybody in the neighborhood, their dads worked at the American Tobacco Company or Liggett Myers Tobacco Company, or they were, you know, plumbers or machinists. or And it, it was, I could be a farmer if I wanted to. I could be a truck driver. A relative was a NASCAR mechanic. But I, I so I didn't get it. As you know, we don't get into philosophy thinking that's a way to get rich, right? That's a way to make a lot of money. No, it's like being a missionary, right? Yeah. But, but, but you, you do have expenses. So it's great when people will pay us for our work, but we're going to do the work regardless, right? Yeah. That's funny. I'm, I'm actually a campus missionary as well. So, uh, <laughs> well, there you go. You know what I'm talking about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. So, Dr. Morse, when it comes to pulling wisdom from, the Bible, from Jesus, from Solomon. Yeah. Um, are you able to do that in a secular setting? Are you nervous about that? Like, well, how, how do you, do you incorporate that into, into yeah. your teachings? Yeah, I definitely do. Um, there's no problem in front of an audience of 2000 financial advisors, many of whom are Christians, you know, Protestants and Catholics, and you're going to have some uh, Jewish folks. You're going to have some Muslim folks. You're going to have some Hindu People with Hindu backgrounds, you're going to have some Buddhists, you're going to have some none of the aboves. Mm -hmm. But if I'm giving them, you know, Seneca and Plato and Marcus Aurelius and Aristotle, they don't care at all that I'm also throwing in some uh, Proverbs, or maybe I'll quote the Apostle Paul, mm -hmm. or it's like I've already set them up for understanding what I'm doing is trying to bring them the world's greatest wisdom. And at a certain point, they're like, okay, boy, the Bible says that. But here's the way I do my talks in a really subtle way. 
there are two things I do. One thing is that I was asked to speak on ethics for two years, as long as I was free. And as soon as I started charging a fee, and, and I had to start charging a fee, Parker, because one guy would offer me $100 for a talk. Somebody else would offer me 200 yeah. Somebody else would offer me 500 If they ever had lunch together, somebody's going to think they didn't get a good deal, right? <laughs> so I had to just kind of set a fee. And I would raise the fee when, when I thought appropriate, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I eventually let it kind of cap out at about what I half of what I thought it could be, but I, want, I never wanted anybody to say he was really great, but he was kind of pricey. Yeah. I wanted him to say, yeah, it was the best value we ever got in a speaker, right? Yeah. So people stopped asking me to talk on ethics. They just wanted me to talk on success or change or partnership. And so I, th- I said to myself, okay, I will. But every one of those talks will be about ethical success, ethical partnership, ethical ways of dealing with change. So I was going to put ethics in everything. Likewise, after I give a talk on true success to 3,000 people, there are going to be six people who come up to me and say, you're a Christian, right? And I'll say, yeah, absolutely. I can tell all through your speech. Yeah. And I'll usually respond, well, you know, these seven conditions that I talked about, you can get them out of the book of Proverbs alone. Yeah. But I'm quoting from all wisdom traditions to make sure everybody feels comfortable mm-hmm. with what I'm talking about. And they don't, nobody puts up a wall, you know, oh, I'm not that. That's not my religion. That's not my philosophy. But they're going to hear from enough different perspectives that it opens them up. It's almost like what theologians call pre-evangelism, sure. right? You're just trying to position people closer to the truth in ways that will help them to see more than they've previously been able to see. And maybe they'll discover on their own depths that they have never would have listened to you say, right? They would have shut mm-hmm. down if it was just me. But as they discover these things on their own, they're going to open up in ways that maybe I I couldn't have made happen. Yeah. Well, that's so great. And so much of what you're saying reminds me of um, what Mortimer Adler was up to um, in, in his great ideas. I, I, I love him. I love it. The Syntopicon. I read it almost every day. And oh, good for you, man. I, it's, it's, it's fantastic. But um, you've been at this for a while. Have you seen your audience change? Are people more hungry for it now? Are they less? You said people don't invite you to talk on ethics. Do you think that represents something in the culture that people are, aren't interested in ethics and they're more interested in success? Like, wh- What's your take on that? I think we're getting ready to see a really positive change hmm. with a lot of the younger people interested in meaning and purpose and ethics and values and business, not as a money machine, but as an engine of human good. And so we philosophers better get ready because a lot of these younger people in business, they're not yet in top leadership positions. So they're not yet put in charge of budgets to hire speakers and trainers and consultants who are philosophers, but they will be soon. Mm-hmm. And so when this happens, we're going to see there's been a, 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 a kind of a generational change. I saw a huge interest in philosophy in the 90s and early 2000s. And when the recession hit, everybody hunkered down and the only speakers they would have at all if they even had a meeting was you know internal speakers or some economists to predict what was going to happen next uh, we we became we philosophers became luxuries unaffordable luxuries right then right um, but and, and so then they kind of established some habits that only it took a few years for those habits to break up and for them to invite a philosopher to come back in but I see these younger people so hungry for what we do and pretty soon they're going to be the ones booking the speakers and holding the meetings and so we better be ready for that yeah that's a great point and i've i've seen um so I'm a millennial and I've, I've taken a lot of heat uh, from my, my boomer friends, from my boomer yeah. parents um, about, you know, we, we want to be authentic and all oh, blah, blah, blah. You, you can't do, uh, you can't do your job if you don't feel good about it. Well, too bad. Suck it up, buttercup. You know, we all had to do that. <laughs> and, and I, I, I bought into that mentality as well, but as I've grown, as I've studied more, I thought, you know, that's kind of a, a good thing that you would, you would want to do what you do because you feel like it's your purpose. It's your tell us. Yeah. Um, like you yeah. feel a good, you feel like you're adding purpose and value to the world. And I think that's actually a noble trait. And I've, I've kind of come full circle and seeing, yeah. Hey, maybe it's because we've been turned off to this stuff for so long that we're, we're being hungry for it. And we're looking yeah. for meaning and purpose. Absolutely right. And I guarantee that the people who do this will do better at their jobs because yeah. let me give you an example. Mm-hmm. I used to hate mowing the grass at my house and I mean, I was miserable while I was mowing the grass. And I was thinking of all the famous people I knew 
who didn't have to mow the grass as I was doing it, right? Mm -hmm. And so I'm not a person who's going to intentionally do a bad job, but I'm sure that years later, when I came to have an embrace, it's it's almost like, you know, Brother Lawrence in washing the dishes or the Zen guy who, who, who incorporates carrying water as part of his meditation practice. When I learned to embrace daily jobs, I started doing them a lot better when they were meaningful to me. When I saw them as purposive in my life, I performed them a lot better. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I, I'd much rather wash my car myself than have somebody else do it who does, who's just doing it for the money. Yeah. And Machiavelli, who said a lot of terrible things, he also yeah. said some wise things. And in one book, the book nobody reads, everybody reads The Prince, which That's is right. awful advice in it, um, <laughs> in a book called The Discourses. He says, uh, mercenaries never make the best soldiers. Right, right. And when you read the passages around that statement, you realize, okay, who does make the, the best soldiers? Not the people fighting for pay, but the people fighting for love of family, town, country, the people whose, whose work is meaningful to them, not just for a paycheck, but for who they are becoming and, and who they're taking care of, right? And so when I see the millennials concerned about all the things that really matter, I think authenticity is a great source of power. That when you don't have it, you just don't do as well. Should we be able to suck it up and do hard jobs that we don't like doing? Sure. But it's always better if we can do the same job while embracing it and seeing it as meaningful. We're just going to do it better. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. I I think of, uh, uh, I'm pretty sure it was Camus Camus who who said we have to think think of Sisyphus Sisyphus as enjoying enjoying. pushing the rock up the hill. Right. Something that nobody had ever thought of before. (laughs) Sisyphus is saying, man, am I building up these biceps and these hamstrings. That's right. Fantastic. Well, uh, okay. So, Dr. Morris, um, when it comes to inculcating this, uh, these these attributes that will uh, that are necessary for becoming a public philosopher, uh, I I think about the philosopher friends that I have, and they're all um, exceptionally uh, specialized in an area of of free will or uh, epistemology. Um, and I think that's great because I need them. I need to to read their dissertation in order to talk to the guys that I disciple about free will and God's uh, decree and stuff like that. Right. But what do they? How how do they go about inculcating um, the general the generality needed um, to teach wisdom to yeah. the popular to to, to uh, lay folks? Well, you know, for some of them, it's a hard transition. Uh, I once wanted to do a book. I knew a bunch of guys early in philosophy of religion, because when I got into philosophy of religion, Parker, there were two or three subject matters, existence of God, problem of evil, meaningfulness of religious language. That's all anybody ever talked about. And so my dissertation was on the doctrine of the incarnation. People were thinking, what is he doing as a philosopher thinking about the incarnation? And now there's this huge industry of a Trinity and atonement and sanctification and incarnation, all this. And, and a bunch of guys who were, Theistic philosophers, most of whom were Christian, mm-hmm. uh, one who was Jew, a Jew, um, an Orthodox Jew. They were really prominent in philosophy of religion at the time when I was a young guy, just getting started. And I said, let's do a book together where you tell your spiritual autobiographies, how you became a religious person or how you became a philosopher, but especially the combination, a prominent philosopher and a religious, a believing person. And it was an Oxford Press book called God and the Philosophers. And, And I said, write the book, your essay, the way you would write a letter to a family member who's not an academic, explaining your journey. And they would say to me, well, I don't know if I can do that. You know, as if they had been writing journal articles their whole lives, right? right, right. And so some of them, I had to coach them for two years to get yeah. them to drop those technical terms, talk like a regular person. But we can, we can, we can learn to do that. We just have to remind ourselves of how we got interested in philosophy in the first place. The, yeah. the questions we had as kids, the questions we had as teenagers, the questions that that pushed us into going deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. Well, most of the people we're going to talk to are now down in the bottom of the well with us. They're up there where we started. And so we can't expect them to come to us. we got to go to them. You know, it's like a bridge. I used to think of my students, you know, they're on one side. I'm on the other side. I've got to go at least halfway to lure them over to my side. And I often would say to my graduate students, look, and I would say to my undergraduates, you guys want this to be the Tom Morris show. There'd be like 400 freshmen in a classroom. 
And I did crazy things. I'd have the marching band come in and play the victory march before the exam. I'd, I'd have a guitar concert for him. I'd have a, a Burger King cater the first two rows because nobody wanted to sit in the first two rows. But if you're not in the first two rows, you don't get free cheeseburgers. You know, I'd have all kinds of craziness would go on in the class for four <laughs> minutes to salvage the rest of their attention for the rest of, uh, of the hour. And I would tell the students, you guys want this to be like a Broadway play. You want it to be the Tom Morris show, but it's more like Outward Bound. You got to pull yourself up the side of the hill, but I'm your native guide. I've been here many times before and I can help you do it. So if we philosophers think of ourselves not as, you know, metaphysical preachers, epistemological preachers, but as helpers who are meeting people where they are and helping them to take the next steps up the side of the mountain, we can make a lot happen. Yeah, that that resonates so much with with um, what I want to do, what I try to do with my students and through the podcast. Uh, it's kind of like uh, I don't have the answers, but I have some of the questions. And yeah. you, I think you have them, too. So come along with me and we can get a little bit further together. Yeah. But, you know, you, you talked about um, think about when you were a kid. And I think about inverted spectrum or spectra. And yeah. it's, it's like, well, how do I know my purple is your purple? Hey, you know, yeah. people have thought about this for a long time. There's a whole SEP uh, journal article about this and people use it yeah. to try to refute uh, naturalism. So let's go. Let's yeah. talk. Let's let's think. It's a real yeah. serious thing that you ask when you're a kid. But it actually is really interesting to, to ponder about. Yeah. I mean, it, you're, you're so right. I mean, my first philosophical thought was when I was about two or three years old. I remember thinking to myself, is this everything? Is this the Tommy Morris show? And everybody else right. is just is just bit players in my show. Or do they think it's their show and that I'm just an extra in their show? And then I remember as a yeah. kid and my son as a kid, why was dad, why was God not born? And and uh and my, and my daughter uh, uh, said, yelled into the room, something like, that's a stupid question, you know, because he was always there. And my son, yeah, but, but, but how did he get there? And my daughter yelled in from the other room. They're both little kids. My daughter yelled, he just showed up, you know. <laughs> and I think kids ask questions like that. They think about <laughs> stuff like that from the earliest ages. And if we can, like my son, I went in, came into the living room one day, there was a dog stand, uh, sitting there looking at my son. My son was staring at the dog. I walked by, the dog was wagging his tail real nervously. And and I looked, I went back and looked at him. And my son, who was probably four or five years old, pointed to the dog, whose name was Rue, and says, does Rue know he's a dog? And I thought, what a question. Does he does he realize he's a pet, that he belongs to us, or does he just think he's using us, you know, for free food and housing? I mean, right. what's a dog's point of view, right? Nagel again. And the subjectivity of mm -hmm. all this, it's natural for us. That's why we as philosophers are not trying to impose on people something unnatural. We're just trying to help them do and be what they're naturally formed to do and be, but it's kind of taught out of them in the most of the school system, you know, in favor of just learning mm -hmm. information. We try to reignite those questions and we set people free by doing that. Amen. Amen. I was just thinking uh, when your when your son asked that, you know, he, there's a great book on that called Our Idea of God that, that maybe uh, <laughs> uh, maybe he should have read. <laughs> that's really funny. Well, as long as we're holding up books, here's Plato's yeah. Lemonade Stand. There we go. Yeah, that's a good one. <laughs> that's yeah. really funny. That's the latest. So, this 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 um for those who don't know this is a great book on uh it's a in, the subtitle is introduction to philosophical theology this is still uh, required reading in in classes here at ted's um That's great. so yeah it's still having an impact uh so i recommend that to any of the listeners who want to start thinking more philosophically about uh god and our, our idea of god our questions about god who is he is he good those things um so uh, yeah that's that's super exciting uh dr morris this has been this has been so much fun just to, to chop it up with you yeah. Um, uh, again, so, so things have changed, right? So things have changed since, since you began, um, and, and people's, um, people's, I don't know what the careers as public mm -hmm. philosophers are going to look different. Um, yep. have you seen different, you've seen different venues pop up. Do you think, you know, is, is starting a podcast is yeah. YouTube is yeah. what, what are some like practical steps, uh, you think you could rec recommend for Oh, yeah. you know, I, I try to post on social media every morning mm -hmm. and it, it won't always happen seven days a week, but at least five or six days a week. And I do something really crazy, Parker. I sit, 
I like to collect beautiful photographs in one of my computers in my laptop that I have with me at the breakfast table. And they could be a photograph of anything. And I just save them because they're cool looking photos from photo websites and stuff. And so I'll pull up one or two of those photos and I'll say to myself, does one of these speak to me this morning? Hmm. And like there was a guy today this morning, a guy standing on the end of a pier at a lake and he's by himself. I said, what is that? What does that say to me? And I kind of sit quietly for about half a minute and then boom, I start writing something Hmm. and I post it on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram. And the reason I do that, it's a paragraph or two paragraphs. Usually sometimes it'll be a sentence or two at Hmm. most. It'll be three paragraphs, but I'm trying to jumpstart other people thinking about things that matter. And maybe they'll feed me some questions or comments that'll help me think about today. It was the, it was the illusion of the individual as soul solitary and depending on nothing else. Hmm. You know, every man is an Island kind of thing, right. because of the solitary guy in the picture and how we, we, uh, it may be one of the most dangerous illusions of our time to think that we don't need other people. We don't, you know, if we choose to align ourselves or link in with somebody, that's our choice. And it could be very temporary and it's never internal to us. You know, so I try to talk about a deeper perspective on human connectedness. Uh, and, uh, you know, yesterday was maybe the notion of the nature of a challenge in our lives, how, how we deal with challenges. And then the, the day before it could be something completely different, but I encourage young philosophers to be present where other people are and to elevate these social media, which otherwise become just maelstroms of people arguing all the time, you know, bring some light to the darkness and, and do a website, do a podcast, whatever you're comfortable with, you be there for people where they are. That's, that's just the virtual digital version of me going to uh, New Orleans or San Diego or Florida to be with a group. Don't expect people always to come to us, but go to where they are. Uh, the Apostle Paul did that. Socrates did that. Uh, some of the most powerful philosophers have gone to where people were, and that made all the difference. Yeah. Good stuff. Well, that's huge. So, um, yeah, yeah. Dr. Morris, uh, where where can people find uh, find you? Where can they find more of your stuff? Where can they find your books and podcasts? And Best way to start, go to Tom V, as in Victor. My middle name is Victor, TomVMorris.com. Uh, that's my main website. Uh, they can click on books. They can click on social media. They can follow me on different sites. Um, and they'll see books like this. I mean, th- you'd never expect a philosopher to write novels. Well, I did a book. It's the most fun I've ever had writing a book. The Oasis Within came to me as a, as a, as a movie playing in my head one day. And I didn't even know what it was. I, I wrote 10 pages and, and put it on Huffington Post. And within minutes had emails from all over the world saying, this is great. This is great. Is this for a book? I didn't know what it was, but it ended up being eight volumes, eight novels of over a million words, kind of my Lord of the Rings, my Narnia, my little version of early readers said, this is Harry Potter meets Indiana Jones meets Plato and Aristotle. Uh, And (laughs) a a kid in Romania in Bucharest, who's 15 years old, discovered these novels um, in the summer. And as he read them, would write me every day through Facebook, direct message, asking me questions or telling me what he got excited about. And the kid at age 15 has become a really deep philosopher in six months just through reading the novels I never knew I would write. People can find out about those at TomVMars.com. So I encourage people to come, explore, look around, use anything that you find helpful to you. Um, there was a blog you can sign up for. I, I, I'd love to for people to come and philosophize with me. Yes. Yeah. That's fantastic. That's fantastic. Uh, I love that, that uh, you wrote that, that novel, wrote that um, novel or those, um, those novels. Um, I think of C.S. Lewis. I think of Philip K. Dick, uh, people yeah, who are, yeah. are putting their ideas into, and it makes you think it makes you, you mentioned earlier about stories and how those influence us. So I'm really excited to, to see that you've done that. I think more philosophers need to yeah. write novels as well. Oh, you know, it's, it, and people, it becomes deeply Christian uh, uh, worldview 
comes up as you go through the books. It gets more deeply theological, and it's set in Egypt, of all places, in 1934 and 1935. And there's action and adventures, there are assassins, there are terrorists, there are political uh, criminals, there are all kinds of people. And yet, the philosophy gets very deep. Uh, mm-hmm. From Aristotle to uh, on through the Apostle Paul, you get Gilgamesh, you get Beowulf, you get a drawing from world literature. So yeah, I would encourage people, if you get a chance to see those novels on my website, pick one. Uh, choose the Oasis Within. This is like the prologue of the series. Only 180 pages. Most of the other books are 300 to 600 pages. They're big books. <laughs> but, um, but this kid in Romania uh, was writing me at the same time a very prominent older lawyer was reading the same series and he would send me pages of comments and he said this is revolutionizing the way i think philosophically about the world so yeah if we philosophers bring stuff to people in a way they can relate to we can change their lives and they can change ours hey man you got me sweating here i'm all excited i'm i'm, <laughs> I'm really excited it's it's, it's so great I, I, we have to you got to come back and we got to talk more um i, I really appreciate well, your perspective and uh, I think I think part of the reason you're you're invited back so much is that fantastic uh, accent as well. It's just nice to hear. You. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Well, you can never tell until uh, I'm really British and I just fake all this southern stuff. Right? That's right. Yeah, well, cool. um, this is this has been Parker's Pensies. That's going to have to do it for now. Uh, Lord willing, we can talk some more later. Um, but that's going to do it for us. Um, it yeah, it was really fun. Uh, as as always, all glory to God.